so when I was in seminary, the very first message I preached in preaching lab was out of Romans 6.23. Are there any good Awana kids here who know that verse? Anybody? Anybody? you got to work harder. Do I see a hand? Well, let's say it together. The wages of sin is death. And that's where I stopped. The first half. The wages of sin is death. It was to highlight and demonstrate the destructive nature of sin. In life, in relationships, in spiritual deadness. And this was not what God intended for the Christian, for mankind. And I was so convinced of that through my own life experience and just looking into God's word. Man, I was driving it home. I mean, I was nailing it. And my professor afterwards says, Man, Nathan, that was great. Yes, you need to let the word of God sting. But you also need to let it sing. Because there's the second half of the verse that says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he was right. God has reached down to those of us who follow him and is wanting to do a work to give us life that we don't have in ourselves. To give us righteousness that we don't have in ourselves. To give us right standing before him that we don't have in ourselves. So indeed, there is the message <laughs> That we are sinners, and that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Today is, is one of those passages where it stings. We're going to see that. That's going to be real evident. But if we listen really closely, we listen really closely to what God has to say to us, we're also going to see that it sings to us as well. And that there's hope and redemption there. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Now, I have to tell you a true confession here. I approach this like a big burrito at, at um, Chipotle. Okay? Man, I want to consume this whole bad boy in one gulp. But as I was working through this, I was discovering there was just much more there, and we're not going to get through all of this. So we're going to eat the burrito one half this week. The other half next week. So that's how we're going to approach this. But God has a lot of good things to say to us. So we're going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to deal with what we have this week. So let's pick it up. Verse 1, chapter 5 of First uh, Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus, I'm the one who has been doing this. So then, when you are assembled, and I am present with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, 
hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread unleavened, the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral, sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such, such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Let's pray, and then we'll get into God's word today. Lord Jesus, as we look at this word, we realize that you're the only one who is perfectly full of grace and full of truth. You're the only one who lived the life that could perfectly please our Heavenly Father. And we're all too aware of our own sin and our own shortcomings before you. But we also realize that this is your word and it's here for our good. It's here to make us more like Jesus, to give us life because it's breathed by your Holy Spirit. So open up our eyes, Lord, and do your amazing grace work among us. If we need repent, then give us grace to repent. If we need to be humbled, help us to humble ourselves. If we need to rejoice, give us grace to rejoice. But we look to what you want to do in us and through us. So take this word, Lord, and use it to further your kingdom and to make us again more like Jesus. That's in his name we pray these things. Amen. The subtitle of this whole series through 1 Corinthians is called Grace in the Mess. And folks, it's messy in Corinth. This is a people who are full of factions within the church. They're full of spiritual pride, really reflecting a self-promoting worldly wisdom more than the humility demonstrated by Christ on the cross, which... Paul calls God's foolishness even. It is wiser than the wisdom of men. And they have an arrogance toward their founding father, Paul, who planted the church there in Corinth. They're wondering about whether what he has to say is relevant, what he has to say is actually from the Spirit. And Paul is in the process of correcting them, calling them to imitate him. And now is following up on this wayward church a report that there is a sinful sexuality taking place among people there, among the body. Again, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind that is 
that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now let's not misunderstand this. He's not saying that sin, that sex is sin. He's saying, what he's saying is that there is sinful sexuality going on here because God created sex. He made it and he made it good. If you read about the creation between man and woman in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, it says it's very good. In fact, he says in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And it says, and the man and the woman, the man and his wife, were both naked and they felt no shame. Sex is a good thing, and God is not prudish about that. He spent a whole book called the Song of Solomon kind of talking about that. But it is a powerful thing. It is a powerful thing, and it creates bonds, physical, emotional, spiritual, and it's powerful enough to create life. And in the wrong context, it can be destructive. It's like a fire that's outside of a fireplace or a fire pit. It may bring warmth. It may bring light. But it's going to burn you too. Think about this. What if we decided we'd just make a fire right here in the middle of the room to heat this room and give us light? First of all, we'd probably all die of smoke inhalation. But this whole rug area would get burned up. That's not the context. That for a fire, nor is sex outside of marriage the context that God has for us. God's plan for sexuality is between one woman, one man in the covenant of marriage for life. And he calls those who are, who are called to follow him to honor that covenant, to honor that sexuality. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4, the author says marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterers and the sexually immoral. I'm going to take it one step more, and we're going to see this as we continue on here in 1 Corinthians. That those of us who put faith in Christ, He is calling us to submit our sexuality to Him. That it should be a holy sexuality. Submitted to Him. We're going to see that especially even more in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Holy meaning it's set aside unto him. But what's happening here in Corinth is not a holy sexuality. We read it as sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia, the word we get pornography from. It means a perversion or corruption or even destructive use of God's good gift of sexuality. Anything outside of marriage, indeed, is porneia. In this case, a man is having an affair, having sexual relations with his father's wife. But most likely, it's probably not his own mother, although that would be even more perverse. But even in this sexually loose society, this is pushing the envelope beyond even what Gentiles are comfortable with. In fact, at least biblically, it's prohibited three times. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 8 says, Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife, 
that would dishonor your father. Literally, it would uncover your father's nakedness. The intimation is that you're exposing somehow your father's private parts. But can you imagine just the conflict that would cause in a family? A son having sexual relations with his father's wife? How awkward the tension that would be? It's not what God intended. And look at the surprise and shock Paul's expressing. Look, not only is this sexual immorality, but this is beyond what most pagans practice. I guess the question we ask is, how could this happen in a church? I, I don't know if you're scandalized or shocked, but I think we should be. And we have to understand, Corinth was a sexually liberal area. The philosopher, Greek philosopher named Demosthenes kind of, I guess, would coin what uh, sexual mores were in relation to women especially. He said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives we bear to bear us legitimate children. You get the sense of the objectifying of women and, and sexuality. I guess, you know, you can say, well, that's the cultural explanation. This is just what we do. It's how we roll. But there's much more than this man's struggle to break away from his sinful habits of the past. The problem is actually in the church. And I will call it a perverted pride. A perverted pride. Verse 2. In relation to this, this is going on, he says, and you are proud. This is going on, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning than have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? This is right in front of you, you guys. You're aware of it, and instead of being sorrowful that this is happening, instead of being embarrassed that this is giving a black eye to the gospel of Jesus Christ, instead of putting this person out of your your fellowship, you've made it something to take pride in, something to boast about. Why? How could they take pride in this? What is going on in this church? Well, perhaps it's not in the immediate context, but we'll do a little investigation here. This is what we do know. We do know that Paul taught strongly against sexual immorality in all this teaching, including just a few samples. Ephesians 5.3 talks about there shouldn't be even a hint of sexual immorality among you. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. 1 Thessalonians uh, 4.3 talks about this is God's will, your sanctification, that you should avoid, avoid sexual immorality, that you should learn to control your body and in a holy and honorable way. This was very plain from Paul, and he spent 18 months in Corinth. I can't believe that this didn't come out. Second of all, the Corinthians, well, they were spiritually prideful. They were gifted in spiritual gifts, and we're going to talk about that when we get to chapters 12 through 14. And they were looking as to spiritual gifts above spiritual behavior. But also, as I said earlier, some in Corinth were questioning Paul's 
authority, his teaching. They're looking to discredit him. In fact, he talks about this in chapter 4, where it states that some have become arrogant toward him. And last of all, Paul parrots back some of their own bad theology. We're just going to fast forward real quickly to chapter 6, verse 12. It's a perversion of their newfound freedom in Christ. Their saying is, everything is permissible to me. And Paul retorts back, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In essence, what has happened is this church has turned the grace of God upon its ear. Talking about Christ's death and receiving the Holy Spirit. To a place where they believe it's permission to do whatever they please. It's a sin credit card, if you will. I can just do what I want. And Christ forgives it all because of the spirit that we have. So Gordon Fee, one of the theologians I read in relation to this, he kind of reconstructed maybe some of their thoughts here. In Christ, through whom we have received the spirit, who has lifted us above this mere earth, all things are lawful. It's kind of a spiritual esoteric view. You know, what matters it's just being spiritual rather than the practical playing out of how I live my life. All things are lawful, including sexual morality, including incest. It's kind of our world's view of, hey, it's all good. No, it's not. No, it's not because sin is destructive. And this is a failure of these people to grasp the new life in Christ and the, and the life that is supposed to be empowered by the Spirit. See, that is that Christ not only died to forgive us of our sin, but He died in order that He can free us from our sin. That we need not keep investing in a life that produces death. That's what Romans 6 is all about, actually. Should we continue in sin, that grace may abound, Paul asks. May it never be. You know, Paul will say in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what the gospel is there for. Not only to forgive us, but to set us free from that sin. The women's Sunday school class is going through the fruit of the Spirit. And in contrast between the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the flesh. One brings life. One brings death. And Paul will comment on this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please 
the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So why am I spending so much time hammering this? Because this group of Christians were deceived. Their pride was a misunderstanding of God's grace, leading them back toward the destructive life that Jesus was trying to set them free from. And I think the same thing can happen to us sometimes when we deal with sin. We fall into three areas of category of sin, or, 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 or I guess I would call it error in this area. We either figure that our sinful desire is too great and we can't overcome it, therefore I'm just going to let Jesus somehow forgive me and just keep going on that instructive pathway. Or we figure that it, it doesn't matter because Jesus has forgiven us and doesn't it, it, it's all good anyway, right? Or we figure that, and this is where we get in trouble, that what the world has to offer is really better than what God has to offer. And so we go there and we, we just hope that God will forgive us. And we are. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, indeed we are forgiven. But again, and He has justified us. And even though that sinful nature has not left us, Christ has come in order that we not we no longer are slaves to sin. We don't have to say yes. We can say no because of what Jesus has done and because of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and does in us what we cannot do ourselves. It allows us to live the life that we can't in our own strength. The Spirit is the one that gives us the power to obey God. And that is sanctification. Making us what we are in position in our practice. That's why it's important to have the fruits of the Spirit. Let the Spirit lead. A life that leads to life, not a life that leads to death. You know, when I was in Santa Barbara, well, you don't know why I was in Santa Barbara, but three years after college, I did an internship in Santa Barbara. And on my days off, I went to the beach, East Beach in Santa Barbara, California, and played beach volleyball there. And after a while, I got to know some of the guys, you know, on, on, the, on the beach there. And there was a particular group of guys, this one individual, that, you know, I got to know, and they were living the beach lifestyle. I mean, it was drinking girls volleyball. I mean, that was, that was, that was their lifestyle. And after I got to know a guy for a while, this one particular guy, I mean, and that's what they talked about. I mean, the guy swore like a sailor. I mean, he was talking about his conquest with women the night before and, and how hammered he got. And then I told him what I did, which was I was an intern at a church. He said, oh, I'm a Christian too. I said, really? No, not, not to judge, but I'm just kind of going, the fruits of your life are not showing me that. And somehow there was a disconnect within this young man that his faith in Christ ought to mean some sort of a life change Somehow that he had to be becoming more like Jesus instead of more like the world. That was the disconnect that was in this church. And I pray that's not the disconnect that's happening here in our church. That's not what Jesus intended. <coughs> and unfortunately, this is 
practically this error was practically playing out before Paul at this church, and their pride in the supposed freedom in Christ led to sexual morality and to incest. And it's a situation where Paul has to insert himself and take spiritual authority, if you will, even though he's all the way across the sea in Ephesus. And he calls for serious action. And he calls for what I call a delivering discipline. A delivering discipline. Verse 3. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, these verses focus on the unpleasant business of removing a brother or a sister from the fellowship of the church because he or she is clinging, well, in this case it's a he, is clinging to his sin without a sense of repentance. But what I want to get to eventually is to show you that this is actually for the benefit of the offender. We're going to see that at the end of this, but next week we're going to look at the benefit for the body. I hope some form of, we, we don't know this, I hope some form of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18 takes place, where Jesus talked about coming to your brother if, if they, they sin, and showing them their sin. And if they don't respond, then get a group of two or three and come to that person and show them their sin. If they don't respond, go back to the church and bring that to them. Here's where the problem is, though. Here's where it got messy. You've got a group in the church saying, wait a minute, all things are permissible. We're free in Christ. And we see Paul looking to correct that. And he brings this matter to the church. Everybody knows what's going on. And if this man would repent as the church would confront him, then separating from him would not be necessary. But see, the fact is not, the issue is not that this man committed the sin. It's the fact that he continues in it and wants to keep doing it without repentance, without remorse, without change. And that's why Paul's instructing me that discipline should take place. And if it, You know, the truth of the matter is, is that if, if we were just talking about individual sin, then all of us would be candidates for church discipline. And all of us would have to be separated from each other. The good news is that the gospel is about us being reconciled to God and being reconciled to one another. But there's some interesting things that we need to note. First of all, Paul's presence by the Spirit. Go back to verse 3. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in the Spirit, in Spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. As Paul mentions, as I mentioned earlier, Paul is reasserting his authority. 
But this is what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, I'm thinking of you, or you were always on my mind. He's saying, no, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am spiritually present with you to the point where I have rendered a judgment, a decision about this man, and I fully expect you to follow through. I don't know if I would have had the spiritual good spot to write this kind of a letter. But the point is well taken. Paul knows that he is Jesus' chosen apostle. And that he represents the interests of Jesus among this church who is Christ's bride. And he's expecting them to react as though he were present himself. In this, and he is in, in spirit. Second of all, the authority of the church on this spiritual matter. Verse 4. So then, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and in the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Even in a church that is this dysfunctional, when it aligns itself with the interests of Christ Jesus, the power of Christ's authority is present. Not just in words, but in true power. Similar to the instruction Jesus gives in Matthew 18 about this issue. After confronting someone and then, and then that person not responding and then that person being a, as a text collector or a Gentile to them. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And we often quote that, that passage talking about God answering prayer, about two or three gathering together in my name. But the context is church discipline. When the church calls on God, in the case of true church discipline, God will not fail to answer his church. And then the third thing that's interesting to note is the judgment rendered that this man be handed over Satan for the benefit of the one being disciplined. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now we struggle with that word to judge because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge lest you be judged. And Jesus was talking about rendering a, a moral judgment that this person is morally condemned. I think in this context, Paul is using this word more of an evaluation about making a decision what's best for all. Then the thought of turning a fellow believer over to Satan? Why would I want to do that? He is the enemy, right? He's this spiritual enemy. What we fail to understand is this, though. I love what Martin Luther says. Yes, he is the devil, but he's God's devil. And God can use even Satan as a tool in his hand to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. Turning this believer, this wayward believer, over to the realm of the God of this world, because that's how he or she is acting in order that they might be corrected. This is really 
with a view of being more redemptive than punitive. It says, Paul says, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In essence, what he's saying is, Satan is allowed to have this destructive way in his flesh to cause this unrepentant sinner to reconsider his or her perilous way, that he or she might repent and turn back to the Lord. God is more concerned about our eternal destiny than he is about our immediate earthly comfort. Even if that result is human death. You remember our study through Acts 5. God brought some harsh discipline to Ananias and Sapphira. Yet I believe they were true believers. But God brought discipline. But here's the heart we need to know about our God, about God our Father. And it informs us out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. He says, And have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son men and women. And then verse 11 in that same chapter. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You see, when we experience the Lord's discipline, it is for our good. It is for our, because He loves us. It's not just to be punitive. So that's where we're going to stop today. Maybe you felt a little bit of a sting today by this word. I also hope that you can see how this sings as well. But this is for the good of God's children. As God brings his correction, it is for our good and his love for us. Next week we're going to talk about how this separation benefits the body. And who is subject to such corruption? So, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and close us today. Lord, indeed, we are humbled and challenged by this word. And again, if, if we're just a matter of confronting our sin, all of us would be subject to church discipline and subject to separation from the body. But I thank you that your desire is not that we be separated from you or each other, but that we be united. And so, Lord, when you bring your discipline, I thank you that it's for our correction, for our good, and, and even to draw us you. So, Lord, if your discipline is necessary, I pray that you bring it in order to draw us to your sin. In order that we might be made more like Jesus. In order that we might live the life and have the life that you intended. So again, we're grateful for your word and ask you to continue to make us more like Jesus and continue to build your kingdom in us and through us. It's in Jesus' name I pray.